Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Hey, welcome. Today we're privileged to have a trailblazer in the technology realm who's been instrumental in merging the worlds of AI and blockchain, Jesse Anglin. He has a pretty impressive tenor in the startup space. His company, Rapid Innovation, does a lot of application development for blockchain and now AI. But he has a vision that goes beyond that to upgrade the user experience of humanity through groundbreaking innovations in blockchain and AI. So that's a pretty lofty goal. We're excited to hear about it today. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate that. I'm happy to be here and glad to have met you. Excited for today's conversation. My wife says she's glad I do podcasts because she's sick of hearing about this stuff. So I know, like maybe you get it out of your system or does it just make it worse, right? I think it actually just makes it worse, but but it does give me an outlet. She doesn't want to hear me talk about AI or blockchain or anything technological anymore. She's like, can't you just talk about football like normal people? I talk about that too, but you know, uh, that's for the weekends. Yeah. So I wanted to start, I'd heard you talking on another podcast, just, uh, I thought it was a really cool distinction where you're saying like the really exponential power of AI is its ability to turn chemistry into math. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that means? So there's an analogy that I like to go to. So a long time ago, back when you and I were kids, you used to go to the store and you'd buy film and you'd put it in your camera and you'd take pictures, right? And that used to be how people did photography. And photography was a niche specialized industry. It wasn't crazy like you see today. There weren't whole platforms dedicated to people taking photographs like Instagram or all of the other ones that exist. I started asking myself, why is that? I stole little parts and pieces from other people. But one of the things that really struck me was the exponential growth of photography happened when you took a chemistry problem and you turned it into a math problem. Because computers are exceptionally good at math, but they're not necessarily great at being chemists necessarily. You know, They can't go and sit down and put the chemicals out and dip the film into it and do the exposure and the light and all that kind of stuff. But you take photography, you turn it into a mathematical problem, and all of a sudden you see an explosion in technology around photography. When you take driving, which is a human problem, and you you then turn it into a math problem, which is what Tesla is doing, all of a sudden you get an explosion of technology, right? You've got cars that drive themselves. And so anytime that you can take any industry... And you can say, okay, how do I take this thing that's happening in an analog world or that's a chemistry problem or that's a human problem? And how do I break that down and allow mathematics to actually solve that problem? You always get an exponential explosion of innovation. And really, like if you look at large language models, what they've done is they have taken human communication, they boiled it down to a math problem, right? And so now all of a sudden we have this big explosion in innovation where you know a human being can have a conversation with a synthetic intelligence and, and it passes the Turing test. You know that it's not a human being, right? Because we've taken human communication and we broke it down into a math problem and now we see growth. So 
that's what I love about where the world sits today, especially when it comes to AI, is that AI really, if you understand how like neural networks are trained, AI is taking has the potential to take a myriad of analog problems that exist in the world today and turn them into math problems and then allow for that exponential explosion of innovation. Yeah, so it's sort of like it's almost taken uh, thinking and turning it into a math problem. I don't know if there's a guy named Brian Kaplan who's a professor at George Mason here in Virginia, and he gave 3.5, ChatGPT 3.5, his econ exam for, I can't remember which class, but and it got like a C plus or something. And then four came out a couple months later and it got an A. I mean, it was like that, just like, bam. I just don't think people understand. They don't get the fact that we have figured out how to create intelligence with math. And the, like, I don't read every single paper that comes out because I don't have enough time. But if you just start reading all the different AI papers that come out with all the interesting things that people are doing, the amount of effort and innovation that is going into the AI space, it will blow your mind because the sci-fi world, you know, that I read about when I was a kid is a thing that will exist in my lifetime. What in the world will human beings do if they have access to an intelligence that's 5,000 times smarter than Einstein? Well, like, what will we do? Some people think it'll do something to us, right? I mean, that's sort of, that's, that might go the other way. So if it's that much more intelligent. I don't think there's much of a danger of AI going rogue and we end up with a, you know, a, a Terminator or a Hal situation. Like, I think the odds of that are actually pretty low. I think that human beings are pretty good at being terrible to each other. And so what's more likely is that people who are greedy and who want power or money or something get a hold of these AIs and we use them as weapons against each other. They don't become weapons against us. I think that's far more likely. Yeah, I think that's the most likely scenario. Yeah, I was talking to a guy who does robotics and AI last week, and same thing. It was sort of like, yeah, someone, even if you don't have AI, someone's going to use robots to kill other people. We already do, sort of, right? We already do. He's building like humanoid robots that will, you know, be stronger and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, I don't think it's about AI. It's just, you know, people will use whatever technology they can. I think that AI has a vast potential to make humanity better. Kind of my, the motto I've had for the majority of my life now is I I aim to try to upgrade the user experience of humanity. The reason I am as interested in AI as I am and blockchain and AR, VR and IOT and and some of the like cutting edge tech that is, you know, coming to fruition right now is because I see them as having vast potential to upgrade the user experience of humanity. But it's kind of like nuclear fusion that has of its time that that technology actually really has improved the world a great deal with nuclear power and some of the other things that we've been able to do with it. It's also caused more heartache and fear, destruction than anything else. And I don't see why AI would be any different than that. I do think we need to figure out how to, what to do with it. Like as a human species, like we have the Pandora's box is open and it's crawling out and no one's stuffing it back in. Like we now are on a timeline to figure this stuff out. I worry that analogy would be too apt and that, you know, nuclear power is such a blessing and we've actually made it very difficult to use the blessing, right? And um, we're actually moving away from our fear. So the hope is we don't lose the benefits of AI just out of the fear. So I put a lot of thought into this. So people are developing these models that can just run, right? Like GPT or 
I think a better analogy would be like Llama or maybe like the Falcon 40 billion parameter model or something like that. These are models that are pre-trained that can just run, right? They exist. You don't have to train them. You don't have to do anything with them. You can just use them. Um, They're kind of like a built piece of software. I think that what ends up happening is that like, I don't know, it's too accessible to just regulate like we do nuclear power. It's pretty hard to go dig up a big pile of uranium and you know, like there's these rare resources and all that stuff. Not super hard to go buy yourself a, you know, a couple A100s and run Llama 2 and then you have access to it. So it's a much more difficult technology to regulate than something like nuclear power, which is why I think we need to figure out how to deal with it because we have to. <laughs> so I was curious, going back to sort of this chemistry to math, do you think there's like, what are the limitations to that, right? Like, I see driving, talked about thinking, but, I mean, has this become biological at some point? And, what, I mean, have you thought about that or whatever it requires? No, actually, I, so I was reading a paper the other day. It was basically, the entire paper was about the limitations of AI. And right now, AI is not limited by the kinds of problems or how difficult of problems it can solve. It's limited by how big, because as you train models, they grow exponentially in their need to consume CPU cycles, right? To refine the neural network and actually find those weights and biases that produce the correct token outputs. And basically there's just isn't enough, like in theory, it can do anything. Like it could be infinitely intelligent and it could solve any problems that you wanted to solve. There just isn't enough compute power you know, universally to be able to get a model to do that. And so I think what's going to happen is as the technology becomes more valuable, we're going to build better and better models to the extent that the hardware can actually produce them globally. Hardware is going to become something that begins to innovate because we need to in order to produce better models. And so you'll see this kind of back and forth but I think it'll follow Moore's law. And I think there's enough proof of concept problem solving that I've seen to make me believe that if something is theoretically possible, it can come up with a solution to it. And so, you know, what do you get if you can build a machine that is smarter than the person that it required to build the machine? And then you can ask that machine to build a machine can that machine build a machine smarter than itself? It probably can. And if that machine can build a machine smarter than itself, you go through a few iterations of that cycle, and then pretty soon you're using AI to improve on itself, right? Which is, if you read sci-fi books, there's a huge warning against this, like never let an AI improve on itself. But we will because we're greedy and, and we want, you know, the biggest and best and the most money coming in, the most power. And so we'll kind of continue down that road until it gets too scary for us, probably. So do you have any vision of what regulation is going to look like? I mean, I know like some of the things that people have talked about is like an FDA for large language models. I just think that's inconceivable and completely the wrong approach. But I don't know. Have you thought about it at all? I I don't know. You know, I mean, part of the reason I got into the blockchain space is because I like less regulation. And I saw blockchain as this idea, like this avenue to freedom. And so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how people are going to regulate things. And I like technologies that are difficult to regulate. I think that AI falls into the category of a technology that's very difficult to regulate. But there was a time in this country where they made it illegal to own gold. And so you can kind of, I mean, you can try to regulate whatever you want to regulate. And I think it works to an extent. And it looks like we're going to get a Bitcoin ETF here. So Porka said that regulation didn't work. 
what I'd like is for the people who are really doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this to just work at being responsible. It's just the question is like, can you trust the metas of the world and the Googles of the world to have humanity's best interests in mind? Or are they going to have the CFO get involved in that conversation and the, you know, the global chief of global market get involved in that conversation and they go, well, I mean, you know, think about what this could do to our bottom line and how many more users we could get if we did X. And then pretty soon you're beholden to your shareholders and people are making decisions based out of greed or fear of someone else. I think you saw it happen in a negative way at Google, where I think they were slow rolling AI for a couple of reasons. I mean, the generous one would be they were worried about it. Yeah, I think maybe they were trying to be responsible. Non-generous would be they realized that it would screw with their search monopoly. So I don't know. You could take it if they want. Let's pretend that they didn't have a search monopoly. And let's say that they were trying their very hardest to be like to be responsible. Like that cost them dearly or could have if it didn't. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and you saw immediately the response. I mean, now we have Gemini coming out. We have the Duet the coming out and all the work products. So. Oh, it's all the stuff they've been working on for years is they're going to bring it to the market because they don't want to lose the race against OpenAI and Microsoft. And that's terrifying that that's what's motivating this, to be quite honest, because this is, I think, dangerous technology. You know, imagine if you had, you know, OpenAI... Just let's go back to the world war and we're inventing the atom bomb or nuclear fusion. And let's pretend that you've got OpenAI and Microsoft on one side and you've got Google on the other side. And it's not a government program that's creating it. It's two private entities working, fighting against each other to create the bigger atom bomb. That's terrifying. And I think that might be what's happening. It might be. That's possible. Well, let's go back to, I want to talk a little bit about where you see, because you've been in like every hot technology over the last few years. So you're big in, in the blockchain. And so how do you see blockchain and AI working together? What's the nexus there? Here's what I think is interesting about the connection between blockchain and AI. So blockchain in and of itself is, I like to think, go up to 100,000 feet and you look down at both of them. Blockchain is precise, right? It's all about something exact where we have an exact ledger, we have exact numbers, we have an exact, everything is very, very black and it's very, very white and there's no gray anywhere in blockchain. Either the money's there or it isn't. Either, you know, you know, it's just, it's very binary. Whereas artificial intelligence is based on this idea of fluidity and there's nothing about, say, a large language model, if you just took that as an example, that is black and white. And the perfect example of this is go to ChatGPT and say, write me a poem about apples. It'll write you a poem. Say it again, it'll write you a different poem. Say it again, it'll write you a different poem. And that's because it's not trying to find anything exact. You know the concept of gradient descent? I've heard you use the term. I don't know what it is, but... Actually, just imagine a topographical map in 3D, right? So it's got mountains and it's got valleys and it's got all this different stuff, right? Well, somewhere on that map, there's the lowest point on the map and the highest point on the map. This is not accurate. So I apologize to anyone who actually knows what they're talking about. It's just the easiest way to think about how an AI is trained. When you train an AI, what you're doing is you're trying to motivate it to find the gradient. So that's all the topographical that I talked about. Descent, the lowest point. The closer you get to that lowest point, the better the model is at doing what it is it was designed to do. And so in the case of like ChatGPT, it's really good at mimicking human communication. And so 
The reason that it doesn't, that AI is more fluid is because it isn't about finding the lowest location because that doesn't matter. It's about getting as close as you can to finding the lowest location. And so you can say 1000 minus 1000 equals roughly negative seven. And it's like, ah, it's fine. That's pretty close. Or it equals roughly six. It's like, ah, it's fine. That's close. With blockchain, on the other hand, you say 1000 minus 1000, like it has to equal zero because it's very binary. When you take this technology that allows for fluidity in data, meaning that nothing has to be precise or exact, and you take a technology like blockchain, where everything is very, very binary, it's a one or it's a zero, it's yes or it's no, it's there or it is not. What you have is a way to create, number one, create data through blockchains that can be consumed by large language models and actually turn that data into something that is useful because large language models use binary, very, very controlled data, you know, input, output, what you put into a large language model is what you'll get out of a large language model. And so I see blockchains providing data to large language models, but then I also see large language models making blockchains, making the information on a blockchain understandable to a human, right? Because if you go onto Etherscan right now and you just look at all everything that's going on, like if a normal person tries to actually navigate the blockchain and try to understand what's happening inside of all these contracts and doing all this stuff, it's going to be really, really difficult. Whereas I think an AI could easily consume all of that binary data and then translate it into useful data for a human mind, because that's what it's good at. And so I think that we're going to see some of those kinds of things happening. There's actually a project right now called Satoshi GPT, maybe? Might not be right, but it's something like that, where they're, they're trying to take and train a neural net all of the data on, on Bitcoin, like all the transactions, all of everything. So you can have a conversation like, what was the first wallet? Where did all the money go? It has like ingested all of the Bitcoin data on planet Earth and is trained on it. Super, super interesting project that I think we're going to see more of as blockchains become more and more mainstream. I would say more in a utilitarian way where imagine that you've got a supply chain blockchain, right, for Boeing. The blockchain component of that supply chain tracks everything, every bolt that's manufactured, all the way from when they're mining the, you know, minerals out of the ground or growing the cotton to make the, the cotton on the seats all the way to the point when the guy goes and screws, you know, torques the bolt down to X amount of pressure. So you've got this blockchain that keeps track of all that stuff. And then imagine as a manager at Boeing, being able to go and have a conversation with that data and figure out like this heightened sense of business intelligence based on all this data. Because right now our human brains suck at data. There are some people that are really good at it. You know, my CTO is that way, like give him a ton of data and he actually does something useful with it. Give me a ton of data. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do with this. But you give me a AI interface to a ton of data, and then all of a sudden I can do really, really creative, interesting things. And I think that that's where you're going to see some of the connection between neural networks and the data that is accumulated on a blockchain. Wow, that's pretty cool. So going back to some of the earlier days when you were working on some blockchain, I saw you did some stuff on um, title insurance and sort of getting real estate on the blockchain. So I'm kind of curious, like what was the, first of all, what was the drive behind that? And that obviously hasn't panned out. So where do you see like the failures that we've had to get something like that going? 
I haven't been in leading tech my whole life. In a past life, I was I was in real estate, um, mostly helping investors purchase investment properties. That's actually how I got into into uh, blockchain. Was that one of my investors decided to sell all of his real estate and buy Bitcoin back in 2011, which I thought was an insane and stupid move because who would sell the world's best investment to go buy the scam token on the internet that was only used for drugs and prostitution and illegal things? But he was a moron and he did it and bought maybe $300,000 worth of Bitcoin in 2011. That ended up being a pretty good deal for him. And so- Do you have any idea what the price was? $50 maybe? 45 Something like that? Yeah. By June of 2011, Bitcoin had hit nearly $30. Look at that. That was And that was the max at that point. He did well. Let's just put it that way. He became a VC in the space. He actually introduced me to the Web3 Foundation early on in 2014 before Ethereum launched and was an early investor in in that as well, along with like tons of other protocols. But I eventually went to work with him and got out of the real estate space. But the reason that I got into blockchain was because of real estate. Because when I looked at things like a title company, right, they even used the right terminology. You go to a title company, you're looking for a cloud on the title, something that's wrong. And you do that by looking at chain of title. My gosh, they even have chain in there. And you go look at what a title company is. They hold the records of where this property has gone and how it's split and what accounts it's gone to. It's a blockchain. Like they're doing a manual paper version of a blockchain and they're just doing it and they're calling it a title company, but it is a blockchain. And... So there was that. I realized you could very, very easily tokenize a piece of real estate. Um, in fact, we did it with one of Zach's homes. Super funny, fast story. Like he, once we had built that MVP, he transferred his house to me, showed me that it worked. And so we went down, filed papers with the courthouse and all that stuff. And basically whoever held the keys to this, to this contractor could sign for this contract on the home. And that's what the title said. And so he transferred it to me as like a demo, right? We're showing that it worked. And then I went to transfer it back. I'm like, dude, I can't get it to work. And I didn't give it back to him for like three days. And he was freaking out because it was one of his nicer houses. But so we built like a couple of different applications like that. But what I found was that there's a lot of incentive in the current way that things are structured in real estate. And I think this is this is like endemic. Everywhere is like this. But there's a lot of incentive to not change things because normally for him to go and transfer his house to me would have cost let's say $8,000, maybe something like that, right? Well, we did it for free. Now, this was early, early days of Ethereum. Gas prices were non-existent. So like miners would just mine blocks and for no rewards. And so he, let's say for $30, you could do that today. It's way better than paying $3,000, $5,000, $8,000 to do, you know, to do the same thing. And so there's a lot of pushback in that industry to shifting over over to a more efficient technology because you could effectively, I mean, if you think between large language models and blockchain, you could eliminate real estate agents, eliminate brokers. You could eliminate title companies. You could basically wipe out an entire industry, like almost to nothing. And things would run better. Well, guess who doesn't want that to happen? The industry that you're about to wipe out. And so- Yeah. And the realtors have got a lot of pull on the hill. So- it's very governmental, right? They're in control of the local governments in some senses, like they have a lot of weight there. And so I just don't think it's not going to happen until there's enough mass moving that direction that all of the resistance can't hold it anymore. And that's just not the case at the moment. 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting analogy for AI too. I mean, but I mean the the thing with real estate is it tends to be for an individual, it's a low number of transactions over their life, right? So it's not like they're doing this every day. Whereas like with an AI, I think once it gets adopted and people see the value, they're using it all the time, right? So I think it in a certain sense it has an exponential effect and you know, it's like Uber, like you use Uber. Once you start using it, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Do you use AI much, like in your day-to-day life? Well, chat GPT and Claude almost every day. I actually, I told my co-founders this the other day. I said, if the APIs for Claude and, I mean, we have our own private models running too that are almost as good. So it wouldn't actually happen. But if I didn't have access to those, I would just take the day off. It's not worth working. I don't know if I'm there yet, but it's close. We're building a product. It's kind of on the down low at the moment, but we're building a product. We've been working on it for a long time called Arcadia. The, basically, the end goal of it is to create like a synthetic business intelligence assistant productivity AI that works inside of your business to help you like accomplish more things as a group of people. At the first version of it, all it really does is you know, it'll like create agendas for you and make you stick to the agendas while you're having meetings and it will do work in the background. And so like, if you need to update a Jira board while you and I are having a conversation, it'll be updating the Jira board for us, or it'll be writing down the user stories we're talking about, or it'll be, you know, creating tasks for developers or doing whatever it needs to do to meet the end goal of that meeting. And, but the other thing that does it like will give you access as a owner of a company to all of your data in a conversational way. So like business intelligence, like on steroids, like you've never seen before, where as an organization with a hundred thousand people, let's say a a thousand person sales team, you could go in and say, what objections are my sales team failing to respond well to? And it can go out and look at all of your data and say, your sales team fails to overcome these five objections. And then you can say, well, which salespeople? And it can go through and just list them like this guy in this call at this time failed to overcome this objection and this is a pattern with them. And so you've got from this very, very high, high level of like needing to run your company and make good decisions all the way down to that management level of business intelligence. And like you can do that easily today. Like I've got like we've been using tools like that for a long time. What do you think is going to happen with like Microsoft Copilot or Google Duet, do you think it's going to take that same role or do you think? The problem is, here's what I think, is that number one, those bigger companies have motivations that are self-serving. They're trying to figure out how to make their empires bigger, not necessarily trying to figure out how to make people's lives better. And they've had a monopoly for a long time. I think that AI is going to level the playing field a little bit because I've got this friend of mine, he's not a programmer. He's never written a line of code in his entire life. And he's like, hey, Jesse, can you help me write this? I'm like, Dude, I don't have any time right now. Just go use ChatGPT. He has successfully created a very, very complex piece of code and then fine-tuned his own version of an AI model to go in and do stuff to, to kind of work inside this really complex piece of code as someone who has never written code before in his life. Like the leverage that you have is insane. And so what I think is that I think that I think we're going to see a lot of giants fall over the course of the next 10 years. That's my personal opinion. And a lot of giants rise. My theory has been like at certain point, at certain point, almost all business SaaS software is like a workflow with yeah. a database, right? So like, why would you need any SaaS right. software? You just go 
if you had like your thing where you have all your data, you'd be like, okay, I don't need a CRM. I could just ask what my top 10 sales leads are. Well, and that's actually one of the things that we're adding to ours, which I think is going to be fun is like a real time low latency bot that you can just talk to. And so you, instead of needing to go and interface with a keyboard anymore. So I believe that a world is coming where user experience is all done visually and audibly, meaning you and I are having an experience right now, right? The current version, like we could be doing this on WhatsApp via text and record the text conversation, right? We could be doing it that way. That's a cool piece of technology, actually, that you, the human beings can communicate that way. That is the current analog version of us communicating with AI, right? Is WhatsApp. That is not going to be the case for very long. And when I say that, I mean, I, it's not going to be the case by the end of next year. I think that the the more common interface with AI is going to just be normal human-to-human communication with normal human communication back at us, just like you and I are talking. And we're so close to that. In the application we're building, we have a beta version of this really, really low latency bot that you can have conversations with about any of your data. And you can do things like, you know, just hop on and ask any questions that you want to ask or tell it to do things like, hey, can you send send an email to Alan that summarizes this conversation and make sure that he knows that I'm pissed off that he didn't send me that report. And it goes and it communicates with you. And then what in my world, your AI picks that up and has a conversation with you and says, hey, Jesse's pissed about you not sending him that report. And it just has a conversation with you, right? And we all kind of have these very, very high level executive assistants that help us accomplish the goals that we want to accomplish in our life. Like that that world's coming. I don't know how long it's you sound like Steve Jobs coming out of Xerox Park, right? You know, it's like you've seen the new user interface. Dude, super, super cool. I'm excited for the new user interface. I don't know what it's going to be or who's going to build the best version of it, but I'm very excited for it. And I'm going to take a crack at it. So we'll see what happens. Well, that's pretty incredible. So you're still a true believer that the blockchain has got a long-term future as a core technology. I think it's funny when I've watched people. Walmart uses the blockchain integral like as an integral part of their actual day-to-day operations today they're using it they can't get rid of it or walmart would not be as profitable next quarter as it was this last quarter boeing uses blockchain today they used it as an integral part of what they're actually doing most money when it moves around globally today touches a blockchain like that stuff doesn't get undone blockchain is not dead i think it's so funny when people talk like that just because pictures of stupid cartoon monkeys like made a couple of celebrities go broke like where in the world is your actual like vision and understanding of what this technology actually is but it's not any different than you want to do something fun just when you have 15 minutes go go on youtube and look up clips from the early 2000s late 90s of people being like the internet's died this fad is over the internet won't change the world there's tons of them they were saying the same thing about the internet back then as they're saying about blockchain right now. And they will be saying the same thing about AI in a year, right? Once the hype cycles died and everyone's lost all the money they're going to lose on stupid startups and all that. And like, it's the same stupid thing. This it, is not new. It's just people have memories of freaking goldfish. Well, didn't Mark Andreessen say that almost every startup that went out of business in 2002 was recreated about five years later and now exists? Pets.com is chewy, right? Yeah. I mean, I think like globe.com doesn't exist anymore, but you have the New York Times and you've got, you know, 
and the way we consume our news is different today. Like the thing is, is I think that people watch these cycles, right, of infatuate of human infatuation, and they decide that a technology is either worth something or useless based on whether or not human beings are infatuated with it. And the truth is that's the wrong KPI. The the indicator for whether or not a technology is useful or not is whether or not people are using it primarily to make money or to improve someone's life in some way, shape, or form, which we tend to judge by people making money. And so blockchain passes that test. People are using it to make money. People are using it to make people's lives better. Therefore, that technology doesn't go away. It's not gone. It can't go away. It would make people's lives worse and people wouldn't stand for it. But the infatuation is definitely gone. I think it's good for the market. Like, thank goodness, it's about time. Let's get all the crazies out of the way and start actually building something real that makes people's lives better, right? Like, let's build email and Amazon. And let's build social media, although I'm not sure social media actually made the world a better place. But, you know, for the sake of argument, let's start building these cool things that make people's lives better. But do that with blockchain. Do it in the financial world and assets and wealth management so that brings me to rapid innovation. So tell me a little bit about the company. And are you guys doing professional services, IT services, or are you developing your own products from the market or both? We're developing our first product right now, which is Arcadia. It, we're not going to, it won't be released to the public for, we're doing a, a closed beta probably starting in a couple of weeks. And then we'll release a first version to the public in maybe three months once we're pretty sure we, that it's good and useful. But that is new for us this is our first product. Primarily, Rapid Innovation is a like is a future tech development services company that specializes in MVPs. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean startups. It just means MVPs, right? So when a new technology comes out and people are trying to figure out how to use that technology to do something new, we want to be involved in that because we like doing new things and we're really, really good at taking very cutting edge tech and turning it into something useful, you know, based on other people's ideas. And we have like, we've been refining our processes for doing it quickly, which I think is the most important part of building out an MVP and bringing a new functionality to the market is to be quick. And we've been like focused on how do we do that quick piece and get a, not just a product to market quickly, but one that you can then scale, right? Because there's a lot of companies that'll go use Ruby on Rails and they'll push a product out in 30 days. You know, you also have to throw the product away after 45, but you have one, you know, or they'll use PHP, they'll do something like that. But how do you use Rust and Node and like, how do you actually build legacy software that will still be running in 20 years, but do it as quickly as the guys do, as the guys building with Ruby or building with PHP? And that's kind of what, where our niche is, is we've refined that market. Yeah. And then we keep our focus on it's blockchain, AI, machine learning, a little bit of AR, VR. And then probably starting next year, sometime on the services side of things, we'll be doing a lot more IoT. Because I see that as the next... This is my prediction. So my prediction in 2018 was this. Blockchain will have a hype cycle. It'll begin to die out and AI will take over. AI will have a hype cycle and it will begin to die out and AR and VR will take over. AR and VR will have a hype cycle. It will begin to die out and IoT will take over. That was what I predicted in 2018. So far right on the money. And so that was why we started with blockchain. Two years ago, we moved to AI machine learning. This year, we're moving to AR, VR. Next year, we'll be moving, spending more of a focus on IoT. And so if it all plays out like that, that's kind of the future tool suite that I think will change the world. I mean, from a government standpoint, there was a little bit of a hype cycle on IoT, kind of smart cities kind of thing, maybe around 2018. 
but we really haven't seen the outcome of that yet. So you see, you really see that playing out. I think that was the pre-hype cycle. It's kind of like AI had a hype cycle back, what, two, three years ago, right? And everyone was talking about it for a little bit. But it's not until some form of transformative technology hits the market that you really get something like really exponential. Like I think for blockchain, that was Ethereum. Like Bitcoin was cool and all of that, but when Ethereum hit the market, blockchain was here to stay. That was the end of blockchain being a temporary fad. And I think that when OpenAI hit the market, that was like now machine learning is here to stay as a public facing. Maybe Apple's VR headset, although I don't think so, will be that that thing for the AR VR space. I don't think so. It's too expensive. But some technology is going to hit the market in the AR VR space and it's going to do the same thing. And then some technology is going to hit the market in the IoT space and it will do the same thing. Well, it strikes me that IoT also required you know, we're actually making big investments right now in broadband connectivity. And so having the basic broadband, having 5G, having the, you know, the priority preemption stuff. Giant infrastructure upgrade. Yeah. So getting that infrastructure and then it requires AI. So those are the two key underlying, I think, technologies that might really blow that up. I think that AR, VR will eventually be how all of this interconnected stuff kind of, I think it'll become the user experience, right? I think there'll be a day where I don't have a computer with a mouse and a keyboard. Instead, I've got a a pair of VR goggles and I do all my work through that by interacting with artificial intelligence. Yeah, I think that it was interesting, the Vision Pro demo and just about that sort of presence kind of thing where like you can kind of be half in that world, but then also see things in this world. I guess it's sort of AR, but it's VR, almost AR. And it feels like VR might be too extreme an environment for people. That might be the one thing that kind of clicks that, you know, makes it usable. Once again, it goes back to all the sci-fi books that were written in the 80s, man. The 70s and 80s. Like, we're moving towards that world. Those were prophetic. They were not fictional. Like, that was, that's, and so you go and think about how those guys interacted and interfaced with the world. Like, you know, they'd have their glasses on and someone would appear in front of them. They're seeing the real world, right? But someone would appear there and they could have a conversation with them. Or, you know, they'd pull up their computer screen and they'd move stuff around with their hands and, you know, like interact just with their human body. Like those kinds of things are, they already exist today. They will exist in a real way, in a real tangible way. In 10 years, the books from the 80s will be our lives. I'm sure of it. By the way, I did look at Van Neumann had a 200 IQ. So he might've been the highest recorded IQ of all time. So ChatGPT is still below that norm. So. so here's the thing, GPT-5, if it does what happens each generation, GPT-5 will be, what is 10x 155? So one more generation of ChatGPT, and we've got the smartest human being who's ever lived outclassed by a magnitude of... I think I might go with the Elon on this and Neuralink and like, we need to become the AI and come together and not have the piece of effort. Dude. But that's scary too. Do you really think that you can have something like that in your brain? Like, I just don't know. I think I want to be a good old fashioned organic human being. I'd like to die that way. I do know there's going to be a lot of people that decide to interface with machines, but I'm going to just die a good old fashioned organic human. I'm already interfacing with a machine right now. So I uh, <laughs> it's only a matter of degrees, right? So On some levels, that's true. Well, that's awesome. Well, wow, this is really a fascinating conversation, Jesse. And thanks for taking the time. And if anybody out there has needs in the IoT, machine learning, AI space, and really want cutting edge, I think rapid innovation is a place to go. 
And where would they go to find you? Just is your URL? If they go to rapidinnovation.io, it's probably the best place to find us. And uh, yeah, or just Google Rapid Innovation. I'm pretty sure if you Google Rapid Innovation or my name, we're the only people who actually show up, I think. I hope so. If not, I'll have to talk to my marketing team. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jesse. We appreciate having you on. Hey, no problem. Thanks, Alan. I appreciate it. This was a fun chat. AI, government, and the future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com. And then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.